losing my voice. Remain standing as I read from God's Word, Revelation chapter 5. I'll be reading the first six verses of this chapter this morning as we continue to see the drama of the courtroom of heaven unfold in this glorious throne room upon which Christ is coming to sit. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, here as I read from God's holy word, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll And it's seven seals. And behold, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Thus far, the reading of God's words, you may be seated. Let me pray now. For the preservation of my voice and the blessing of the preaching of this word. Lord, we long to see what the world cannot show us, but what your word so clearly does. Not a vision of earthly powers, but a vision of that heavenly throne room upon which even here, Christ comes to sit. And as he is given that name that is above every name, may we even today worship the one, bow before you as the king of heaven and earth, and find in you our only hope, not only for salvation, for ourselves, but as the one who is worthy to begin to read from and rule according to all that is written within this scroll. And so we leave it to you, the conquests of the nations. Teach us then, Lord, to stand in awe, rejoicing in the presence of the one who has defeated death and the grave and hell forever. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Uh, It used to be in these great United States that the State of the Union was only a letter sent from the White House to be read on the floor of Senate and Congress. It has become something else, right? It's become an event. It's become an event because our nation is slowly turning back into a monarchy. And the reason for that is this. Weak people worship other men. 
And as we become a nation that is more and more filled with weak, immoral people, we are looking for a king to rule us. We do not wish to be self-governed. We wish to be governed by another. And so oftentimes we get caught up in all the fanfare and we are looking to a man to bring us good times. Were you disappointed this week? You should be. In fact, you should always be a little bit disappointed because the ones in whom we seek to place our trust that are born of the stuff of this earth, made from ash and dust like you and me, do not have the capacity or the power or the call or the intention to deliver you from that great problem that you possess as one, though made in the image of God, broken under the fall. And there has not been a law or policy enacted or adopted or could ever be that would save us from our great dilemma. And that great dilemma is presented to us in Revelation chapter 5. Here we find the sort of drama increase as the throne room scene continues from chapter 4 to chapter 5. Now in chapter 4, we see the, the choir of heaven warmed up. The Father is seated upon the throne, and the four great angels began to sing, and with them, the 24 elders, which represent the entire church invisible, that is, all of the elect, represented by those 24 elders, 12 Old Testament, 12 New Testament, the tribes of the old, the apostles of the new, they are meeting together for a reason. And it is the coronation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to see this. Because it is easy for us to think of ourselves merely as a body persecuted. A body that is resolved and will never experience anything other than misery or coping with death. Or suffering. Or pain. Or trial. Torture. And all of these things, even at the early church and the church from the very beginning of the book of Acts, has experienced in an ever-increasing way the martyrdom and the suffering of the saints. Is that all there is? But Christ would have John testify to the very things that he sees, the very things that control all that the church experiences now, in the past, and even until the coming of Christ again. You need to see it. It is a kind of state of the union for the body of believers. Let's look at verse 1. In fact, let me actually give you my, first, my, my body points. The first, a reason for weeping, and second, a reason for rejoicing. A reason for weeping, a reason for rejoicing. Let's look at the first point and we see it unfolding, this point that I've made, a reason for weeping. The scene continues. Look at verse 5. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated upon the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, I want to give you the context, the temporal context for Revelation chapter 5. This is something that has taken place in the past. 
And not just in the past as far as we are concerned, but in the past as far as John was concerned. What John saw in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 were those things in heaven related to the time of Christ's ascension. And John sees it from a different perspective. You will remember at the end of the Gospels, or really at the beginning of the book of Acts, John is there with the rest of the disciples who are soon to be the apostles, and they see Christ going up into heaven. And if you're anything like me, you're going like they are. What's happening up there? Where'd he go? I remember we would shoot off these model rockets when we were kids. My dad and I would. He's a perpetual kid. (laughs) And I remember one of these times we're looking up, and it's a cloudy day. We can't see it. Of course, the, we had run out of wadding, which is the thing that protects the plastic parachute, which is a terrible thing to build a parachute out of. When heat is added to it, it melts unless you have the wadding. Well, we used <laughs> tissue paper, which was not proper wadding. And so this thing went up, and we're looking, and we're looking, and we're looking, and then it comes down whatever the speed of gravity is it's an acceleration formula it's fast enough and it comes down two feet from our feet right into the ground about this deep into the ground and we're thinking i'm glad it didn't go into my head so we're looking and looking and the angel says to the disciples why are you looking up and the disciples from that point on are probably wondering to themselves what happened up there what is going on And John sees it. In another vision, many years later, John sees what happens when Christ gets there, when Christ arrives. But he doesn't know it yet. In Revelation 5, he sees the Father seated upon the throne. And in the Father's hand is a scroll, and it is sealed. It is secret insofar as it has not yet been opened. And it has been secured until the day when it is right to open. Many of you have prepared a a last will and testament. That last will and testament is a secret, private document, for the most part, that is not to be read until the time is right, i.e., your death. And when you die, that will is opened and the contents of your belongings are distributed to whatever names are in it. But the effect of that document, though already written, is not, well, effective until your death. In the same sense, there is a covenantal document. And we'll look at what that document is in a moment. But that document, that scroll, was not to be opened until a particular set of circumstances were achieved. And so the Father, who is the decreer of all things, holds in his right hand the content of his eternal decrees. And as is all of God's revelation, we do not see what is in it until he has deemed it fitting to open it and show us. And so when you think of the decrees of God, think of them in this way. These things are eternally written within the mind of God and the counsel of his will, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, only to be opened 
and revealed to us upon certain conditions. And so John sees this. And John, like you or me, who is sort of witnessing all that God is doing, sees things differently. He sees it as a man. And what he sees is a scroll that cannot be opened. And in fact, he hears a proclamation in verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. It's, it's ironic that I'm losing my voice. It says something of the weakness of men and the glory of the angels. And the angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who will do it? Who will meet the conditions of the requirement? Think of the scroll as possessing maybe even a a kind of lock. And you have to have a certain key. Maybe some of you have had those diaries that come with a key that's like every other key that every other diary that was made in China came with. But it seems as though no one could penetrate the lock and all of your secret thoughts are protected until your brother finds the key. And they open it and they read about, dear diary, I love so-and-so. I hope he loves me too. Do you know what I'm talking about? Except this seal is eternally, divinely bound. And it has been bound since the decrees of God were laid Eternity passed. And what we find when it is opened comes as this chapter unfolds. Now John sees what is happening and he hears the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And then look at verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And immediately in the mind and the heart of John, there is a crisis. There is a dilemma. And the dilemma is this. There is something awaiting revelation. But there is no one who can reveal it. John begins to weep. Because he understands the implications of this decree that is unfulfilled. We often have this response to the decrees of God. Have you ever wept in sorrow at the sort of fog of war that remains in your heart and that is sort of impressed upon your vision of the things of God? Whether it is a misunderstanding or a lack of ability to see the hard providence of God. Or even as you await the coming of Christ Jesus and you are suffering many afflictions in this life. To the point of tears and weeping. Lord, come. Don't tarry. John understands at the very least that there is a dilemma. There is a problem. And here is also the problem. He sees the Father upon the throne, and even the Father cannot, does not, will not open the scroll. Now, what does that mean? From a deeply sort of first book of theology as it relates to the doctrine of God, 
There are some things that the Father has not decreed for himself to do in the plan of redemption. That within the persons of the Godhead, there are economic functions. When I say economic, that's a theological, technical word. There are certain things that are given to each of the persons of the Godhead. And it is not left to the Father. He has not decreed it that he would be the one to open the scroll. And so John is going, in some sense, in his mind, his human creaturely mind, if the Father cannot open this, who can open it? And why is the question asked? And who will answer the question? In fact, this is the dilemma for hundreds of years from the time of the promise of the seed who would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3 to the time of the book of Malachi and even hundreds of years later such that all of the covenant people of God as they are awaiting the fulfillment of the Messiah are going, are you the one? Are you the one? Are you the one? And like that little bird in Are You My Mother? is learning what the very identity of his own mother looks like. He goes to a crane. Why a crane? Because he's never seen his mother. But then when he is found by her, the true identity and the propriety of one who is like him is revealed. And in a moment, the relief washes over him. Because he is found by the one whom he was lost to because of going out of the nest. And in a similar fashion, John's dilemma in that briefest of moments, in that span that seems to last for eternity between the dilemma and the weeping and the comfort that comes in a moment, all of that groaning and waiting represents our waiting in the Old Testament. Who? Who will it be? Is it Melchizedek? Is it Elijah? Elisha? Is it David or Solomon or Hezekiah? And every single one of those men that are pictures, types, and signs of the Redeemer are not sufficient. They are not our Redeemer. They may be good men, but men of feet of clay... It is the dilemma of the waiting for the one who is actually able to accomplish the will of God unto salvation. And it is John's dilemma, and I want you to live in that dilemma. Because it is the dilemma that every man faces. It is the dilemma of the fulfillment of the plan of redemption only to be accomplished by one certain individual. It is not unlike being in the kitchen and there's that stinking pickle jar and no one can open the pickle jar. And then they say, hey, dad, will you come open the pickle jar? And of course, yes, I'll do it. And then you realize your wife loosened it for you just moments before. There is a sense in which all of heaven is going, what's about to happen And even the angels, Peter says in 1 Peter, long to peer into that book 
And though they had clear sight, they still asked the question, what's in it? What is in the scroll? And who will open it? What it is, is providence waiting to be fulfilled and unlocked by one certain individual. And so the question is put, who is worthy? It is a matter of worthiness. It is a matter of strength and ability, of character, of calling, of the decrees of God. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one was worthy. And so John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Who else would it be? John, there in the throne room of heaven, is in the center of it all. Who could it be? But what John does not realize is when he is. He stands at the precipice of the fulfillment of the kingdom of Christ. And Christ is in some fashion in transition from earth and heaven. And this dilemma can only be solved. The bitterness of it, the comfort of it can only come when the scroll is open, because one who is worthy has appeared. This is how you should relate to the true spiritual condition of men and the lack of fulfillment of the kingdom of Christ. It is one of sorrow. It is one of anticipation. When will the time come for the plan of God to be fully realized. And so in this pause, in this pause between verse 4 and 5, in which the whole world holds its breath for the answer to the question of who is worthy, you must answer this question. And this is the problem with works righteousness. You are not worthy. And every works righteousness doctrine endeavors to cause you or to call you or to motivate you to take the scroll for yourself and to open it up. But who can do that? Who can do that? And even within the church, we never claim to have the place, the power, the strength, and the wisdom to look into the scroll that only one can read and know and fulfill. And if such a state, such a dilemma, such a sorrow continued, there would be no hope for you and for me. But the scroll has been opened. And so let's look at the sort of means by which that is accomplished. Even as John experiences a great reason for weeping, that there is this dilemma, that there is a scroll held within the hand of God that needs to be opened. This pent-up providence, as it were. 
he is immediately told by one of the elders, one of the 24, represents or who are representing the church, and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, before we get to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, let's look at what the scroll represents. We need to know the significance of the scroll because there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. If we don't get it right, we don't understand the nature of Christ and his kingdom. The scroll represents the rule and reign of the one who is able to open it. It is sealed by his own name. And it belongs to him such that when it is open, it represents the commencement of his rule and reign. Christ comes to the throne. And as the one who is the eternal logos, the word of God made flesh, the fulfillment of the plan of God unto the redemption of sinners and the judgment of the wicked, Christ comes And the Father gives to Christ the scroll for the reasons listed in verse 5. Because he has conquered. It is a scroll that reads, in essence, Hear ye, hear ye, is the rule and reign of Christ Jesus from this time forth and forevermore. Christ reads from the scroll. And then we see the contents of the scroll as the chapter's Progress. And the seals are broken, and it is red, and what it stands for is the worship of the saints and the judgment of the unrighteous. All according to the decrees of God. It has already been written, but it can only be opened by the one whom the Father decreed to be worthy to open it and to read from it. Now John wept because there was no one worthy. But the words of the comfort of the elder are what? There is. He's just arrived. In fact, he's come through the door, and as he approaches the throne, John is told by the elder that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, and that he comes to heaven as a conquering hero, It is Psalm 45, isn't it? It is the psalm of the triumphant king that in light of his triumph, he now binds himself to his church and he begins his rule from the throne. And so the father stands up, takes the scroll, gives it to the son, and the son takes the throne. And he is awarded the crown and the throne based upon what we read in Philippians chapter 2 because he was obedient to the Father even to the point of death and so was raised by the Father and given the name that is above every name that at the name of Christ every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. John weeps but his weeping is turned to rejoicing because of what he sees. And in the same fashion as it relates to the anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promise, and some of it has not yet been fulfilled, right? We await the coming of Christ. 
There is sorrow at times in your heart. When? How? What? Those questions are answered here. Not when, but who is seated upon the throne. It is Christ Jesus. And so our sorrow ought to be transformed into rejoicing because Christ has already begun his reign 2,000 years ago. And from that time forth, Revelation chapter 5, which stands around A.D. 33, the ascension of Christ into heaven, Christ has already begun to read from that scroll, and the glories of his rule and reign are observed in our very presence. You're here because Christ is reading from the scroll. The nations are being trampled underfoot because Christ is reading from the scroll. All that you see is the product of divine eternal decree made effectual by the Son, made worthy made worthy through his sacrifice. And so we are to behold the God-man, the Redeemer, called by his titles. Well, the first one is what? The Lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus comes from even David's line. And we see this spoken of in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 3, we are told, chapter 1, verse 3, we are told that Jesus is the physical descendant of King David. In Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Isaiah chapter 11. In Hebrews 7, we read, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. That Jesus is the descendant of King David. And that he is the lion, the conquering hero. The one who will bring about the fulfillment of the promises of God that began in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. But he is not just the branch. That is the extension of, the, the shoot that comes from the stump. But we're actually told something that is similar but distinct enough. Not only is he the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he is in fact the root of David. You see what's happening. Both of these titles speak of the connection of Jesus to David and the covenant people of God. But in one he is referred to as the branch. In the other he is called the root. Well, which is it? Is he the beginning or the continuation? And the answer to that question is yes. So that when you look at your confession, and this is the beautiful work that the Westminster Divines did. They speak of the covenant of grace as being made with Christ and his children. You and I, through Christ Jesus, God has entered into a covenant with us. It has been made with Christ and as our representative we find ourselves before the throne. Christ comes before David. In fact, it is because of Christ that David comes. But in a way that is keeping with the unfolding of revelation as testimony of that reality that Christ is the root of David, we also see him to be the branch of David. David comes from Christ. 
And the testimony that Christ comes from David is seen even in the genealogy of it all. He comes before and he comes after. He is greater even than David. And so he is not just branch, but he is root. All of the covenant promises of God originate in Christ Jesus. Take some time even today. If you wonder, what do I do on a Sunday between morning and evening service? Meditate upon the glorious truths of the scriptures. And you may say, um, I've got better things to do than that. And I'm saying to you, how? What is more glorious for the saint than to contemplate the drama of this moment? When the king arrives and the whole hosts of heaven are going, yes. It has been fulfilled. There was once no one worthy. And when I say no one, the pre-incarnate son of God was not yet worthy to open the scroll. It was necessary that he die and be raised from the dead. That he obey the will of the heavenly father. His father, our father, even he was not worthy until he suffered and conquered death in the grave. And so our end to sorrow is the cross of Jesus Christ. Revelation 5 verse 5 is impossible without it. And in, if Christ is not dead, if Christ is not raised, remember what Paul says? Humanly speaking, our faith would be in vain. We would still be waiting. Where is the one who is worthy? But he has come. And because this has happened in the past, 2,000 years ago, the effect is, is incredible. When Christ says to his disciples, it is better that I go, this is part of what he is referring to. I have to go start things. I have to be the king upon the throne. Now the good news for us is what? That Christ has sent to us a helper. The Holy Spirit. And even he is alluded to in verse 6. As the seven spirits of God that are sent out into all the earth. And what the Holy Spirit does is he is going to the nations. And in essence he is saying to those who are lost. Who are the elect people of God. Hear ye, hear ye. The scroll has been opened and it is time. It is time for the nations to be brought in. And because the scroll is open. The church explodes. And it is not until this scroll is opened that the church explodes. I don't know what else to call it. Now you may judge the progress of the church by how much we suffer. And I am telling you what John isn't communicating to us is that we ought to measure the success of the church by what we find in the book of Revelation. That what God hath said is more important than the questions you have or the sufferings that you experience. Our suffering does not seal the scroll. Our suffering does not mitigate or diminish the rule and reign of Christ Jesus. In fact, within the scroll is prescribed the suffering of the saints unto the building of the kingdom. 
It's the means that God uses to connect his people in their sufferings to himself and to show the world that it is, in fact, even in the midst of suffering, that we can have joy and victory. It is the book of our Redeemer. It is a plan that has always existed, but has not yet been unfolded, unrolled, as it were. All of the writing is on the inside until Christ opens it and begins to read from it. But not only is he the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, but look at verse 6. He is introduced in this way to John. And yet when Christ sits upon the throne, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, one of the things that we need to understand about Revelation is this. We see what God wants us to see. And these things are described in a way that are very fitting for us. John isn't doing the best he can. John is speaking words given to him by God so that we can understand truly, however not fully, but truly what he beholds. And what he sees of Christ is one with seven eyes. Did Jesus' children ascend to heaven with seven eyes? Can you imagine that pair of glasses that would have to be made? How expensive those would be? Not just two eyes or how he would be made fun of if he were to have, hey, 14 eyes, how you doing over there? No, Jesus didn't have seven eyes, did he? And yet when John describes him, he has seven eyes and he has seven horns. They are representative of something. What do they represent? Well, the horn represents strength. Seven, the fullness of it. Christ is not slain anymore, is he? This is the problem with the crucifix. I saw one of these the other day in a church. It was a crucifix of Jesus. And not only is it an idol, but it's an inaccurate idol, which all idols are, right? By their very nature, they cannot express the essence of who Christ is. Can you imagine if you saw a statue of Jesus in a church with seven horns and seven eyes? You'd probably go, what sci-fi fantasy film is this from? Well, it's from the Bible, It's a terrifying vision, but it is a terrifying vision that communicates glorious truth, and that is this. Christ is omnipotent in his power. He is omniscient in what he sees and knows with his seven eyes. And by the seven spirits, which are the Holy Spirit, Christ is ever-present with his people. That as Christ opens the scroll... The reality of the risen, ascended Christ is not a humble, miserable servant. It is an exalted redeemer, never to be humbled again. Christ sympathizes with our weakness. But he's not a weakling. He sympathizes with our weakness as the seven-eyed, seven-horned, seven-spirited God. And this is one of the great injustices that we often think of as it relates to Christ. 
Christ will never again give up his power and his authority. And that he meets us in our weakness in his power and authority. This is Psalm 113. That the one who is transcended above the heavens is also near to the broken. But he does not give up his power. Which is why we should be comforted in our weakness. Because Christ is powerful. And so the only application that I can think of beyond the sort of implied application is, saints, behold your king. Behold this mysterious vision, this lamb with horns and eyes and spirit, who though slain, bearing the marks of his suffering, stands. John sees the covenant reality of the one who takes authority even Christ Jesus and the Lord in his wisdom gives us this picture of himself so that we might know though he was humble he is powerful though he was lamb he is lion though he is near to us in our weakness he is there in the throne room of heaven that's the state of our union He is the only true king. And whenever you struggle, how's the church doing? Go to Revelation 5. And ask yourself that question. Is Christ still upon the throne? Absolutely he is. Has he finished reading from the book? No. There are still nations to be trampled underfoot. There are still those sinners who are in need of salvation whom Christ has in those decrees sending his spirit after redeem them, to redeem them. But this is the vision of our glorious king. May we never forget it. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God.